Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto. It's August 15th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The story of Uber is one of convenience. It's about how a simple piece of tech has been at the forefront of the way people call a ride or have food delivered. This level of convenience is worth a lot of money, with a new report by Uber estimating the company has delivered a gross impact of $930 million to Aotearoa's economy as a whole, including $88 million in additional value for restaurants in New Zealand. Overall, Uber reckons it's contributed a value of $1.3 billion to the New Zealand economy in 2021 alone. That all sounds amazing, right? But that convenience can also come at a cost to drivers and restaurant partners who use the service. And the debate about that has spilled over into our court system. On today's episode, Uber, the Restaurant Association and First Union share their take on rideshares as well as the impact of the company on Aotearoa. To begin, we're joined by Uber Eats Managing Director for New Zealand and Australia, Beck Neist. Beck, you've just released a new report showing that Uber's value to the New Zealand economy is quite large. Can you give us a sense of some of the top-line figures that came from that report? Yeah, so we've now been in New Zealand for eight years, and so we thought this was a great opportunity to take a step back and look at Uber's overall economic impact here. This is the first time we've looked at this for both of our lines of business, so for both Uber's rides business and obviously Uber Eats together. And so this report looks across all our different customer groups, so riders and consumers, drivers and delivery people, and also merchants and restaurant partners. The report finds that Uber's total economic impact is about $1.3 billion, which represents roughly 0.3% of New Zealand's GDP, to give a sense, and about a billion dollars in consumer surplus. For drivers and delivery partners in 2021, the report estimates that they took home roughly $68 million in extra earnings, so about 3% above, on average, the next best alternative. And looking at some of the sort of other economic value, the report also finds that that drivers and delivery partners actually value the flexibility of the work at around 41 million in 2021. Just touching on that $1.3 billion figure, that's a huge number. So how did you come to that figure? What are some of the methodology behind coming to that figure? That takes into account direct and indirect impact across the two businesses. So that includes, for example, driver and delivery partner earnings based on our data, but also the impact of uh, driver and delivery partner spending on you know, vehicle-related costs and also looking at the merchant or restaurant part of the business induced indirect impact of restaurant spending in New Zealand as well on the platform. Uber Eats has long been considered as like the spin-off, the smaller brother of the broader Uber business. But during the pandemic, that's been flipped to some degree. Do you want to talk through that process of the last two years and how your job has changed in response to the enormous growth that Uber Eats has had? Sure. So the pandemic's been really challenging for many people and many industries. But at Uber Eats, what we did see was a lot of growth through the pandemic. We were seeing really strong growth before that. But if anything, what we saw in the pandemic is what we think was an acceleration of consumer adoption of online food delivery that really brought forward that growth. So, you know, across many markets, we saw very strong growth in the delivery business and restaurant partners getting excited about growing their delivery business as well. It was 
really exciting to be able to really support the restaurant industry through the pandemic. In a lot of cases, they were relying at times exclusively on our platform or online food delivery platforms to be able to keep their business going through lockdowns and so on. And so being able to play that role of supporting the industry and really partnering with restaurants through those difficult times was great for us to be involved in. On the mobility side, I think obviously it was, you know, more challenging for the business during the pandemic in terms of growth. But what has been exciting is as things are opening up and markets are coming back to where they were, we've seen the mobility business come back almost to where it was. So in a good position, I would say now in both delivery and mobility, our delivery business here in New Zealand continues to to grow really strongly. And so we're really excited to see that. What's the revenue split like between the delivery business and the ride business at the moment? So during the pandemic, the Eats business grew to 52% of the business. Uber does make an enormous amount of money, but in its recent financial um, result, it did post a $2.6 billion loss. How concerned are you about that, given that the economy does seem to be shifting a little bit? I mean, is that kind of loss sustainable in the current market? In our last earnings call, you may have seen that Uber posted that we were actually free cash flow positive, which is a milestone for the business. And we're excited about the financial trajectory of the business. The big figures on Uber's economic impact do help to tell the general story the company is trying to get across. But the impact of Uber is also more nuanced than that. The company currently faces legal action in New Zealand brought forward by First Union and Etu on behalf of drivers. This case follows similar international action and could change the relationship between tech companies and the drivers that use their services. I spoke to Anita Rosentretter, a strategic project coordinator for First Union, who says that Uber's promise of flexibility doesn't always reflect the real-world experience of the drivers using these apps. Anita, under the current law, what is the legal status of Uber drivers, and could you explain what that means in a practical sense? Well, at the moment in New Zealand and many countries around the world, Uber drivers are generally considered to be what you call a contractor, but that is being tested in our court at the moment and in many other courts around the world. And the issue is basically that if you're not an employee under New Zealand law, you're not entitled to what we call minimum standards. So things like the minimum wage, guaranteed hours, the right to challenge an unfair dismissal, annual leave, sick leave, public holidays, KiwiSaver contributions, the right to unionise and collectively bargain and so on. So if your employer doesn't accept that you're an employee or doesn't label you as such, and instead you're something else, for example, you might be a business owner, you might be self-employed, a freelancer or a contractor, then you're not covered by the Employment Relations Act and its related statutes. So where someone is a genuine contractor, this isn't an issue because it's up to that person to figure out how to run their business successfully enough to meet their own financial needs. The issue is where a worker has been misclassified or mislabeled by their employer and is therefore missing out on these very basic fundamental things. So you can imagine how much money an employer can save by not having to cover for each worker, you know, four weeks of paid annual leave a year, up to 10 sick days, 12 public holidays, et cetera, and not have to deal with, you know, pesky unions or um, to justify it when they want to fire someone. They can essentially do what they like. 
the incentive to misclassify workers is there. And unfortunately, the disincentive is nowhere near strong enough right now to stop that from happening. The enforcement of worker status in New Zealand is almost non-existent. And that means that hundreds of thousands of workers are actually going without what they should have in terms of their rights and entitlements. And among them are Uber drivers. What exactly is the union trying to achieve with the legal action against Uber at the moment? What we're trying to achieve is for um, there to be a clear decision from the Employment Court of New Zealand that Uber drivers are actually employees of Uber. They're not self-employed. They're not contractors. And actually, Uber's argument is that they're customers of Uber, which is pretty absurd in our view, but they say they're customers And we need the court to say, no, these people are working for your business, they're working in your business, and therefore they should be entitled to the rights and protections that all other employees in New Zealand have. Uber does speak quite often about the value of flexibility in allowing people to work the hours that they choose to rather than a set nine to five. What would your response be to that argument? Uber's flexibility argument is definitely a myth thrown through. First of all, there's nothing preventing flexibility of hours in an employment relationship. Many employees in New Zealand have flexible hours based on, you know, when the work needs to be done and their own personal needs. And the ultimate flexibility is a casual employment relationship. That doesn't meet many people's needs because we generally have ongoing living expenses to cover. But for those who do desire something genuinely casual, they can have that without also losing out on the rights and protections of employment because they still have access to those things as casual employees. Secondly, the way Uber drivers end up working in reality is based on when there is work available on the app, and that's when Uber needs them to work. This is primarily during rush hour, late on Fridays and Saturday nights. These are not the hours of work that best meet the needs of the drivers themselves. These are the hours that Uber needs drivers for. If a driver wanted to only work between, say, 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. every day, they would struggle to get enough rides to sustain that. So drivers generally end up scheduling their lives around the peaks of Uber's business. Uber also very deliberately pushes drivers towards working the hours it wants them to work using incentives and disincentives. For example, Uber uses surge pricing to attract drivers to certain areas at certain times. Surge pricing means passengers pay more and drivers earn more. But the money that drivers earn during off-peak times is so low, it's comparatively peanuts, so they really have no choice but to work during those peak times if they want to sustain themselves. And this is the way that Uber effectively rosters drivers to work in the way that any old employer would roster their employees to work, but pretending that it's completely hands-off and it's at the will of the drivers. How important do you think that this court case will be not only for Uber, but for the gig economy in general, given that we're seeing a trend where the gig economy is growing across a range of sectors at the moment? It's really fundamentally important. And the New Zealand case will actually be hugely important on the global stage as well, because I mentioned those other cases that have been won out of various countries. The case in New Zealand is actually one of the most thorough takedowns of Uber's system worldwide. So it's a really, really extensive piece of work. Our legal team has done an absolutely incredible job of a really in-depth analysis of the way that Uber works. And so I think it will be fundamentally important on the global stage. But like you say, it'll also be really important in New Zealand because 
The gig economy is expanding. We have seen that so far. You know, we've seen it being set up in the courier space and also in home support now where, you know, vulnerable members of our community are swiping right for their carers and things like that. And this is dangerous stuff because what it means is that we're seeing a widespread undermining of workers' rights across these different industries. And I can't really see where it will stop. I can imagine it being translated to many, many different industries. And these are the rights and protections and entitlements that workers in New Zealand have had for, you know, more than a century. These are really fundamental rights and the gig economy is coming along and pretending like it's this great disruptor, like really innovative thing that no one's ever seen before. It's absolutely not that. And that is completely just Silicon Valley propaganda to try and pull one over on us in the name of profit. Uber's legal challenges are mounting up around the world, from New Zealand and Australia to Spain, Italy, France, the UK, the Netherlands and India. Countries are starting to question how the company should be allowed to operate. Despite these challenges, Uber's Beck Nice admits that this trend is likely to continue. The other area where Uber has faced a little bit of backlash is currently the court case in which unions have asked for the employment court to recognise drivers as employees. We've seen similar court cases abroad. So what would your comment be on that court action? Where are we at with that court action at the moment? As to the specific court action, because that's a matter before the court, I won't comment. But what I will say in terms of our general perspective, the feedback that we hear from delivery partners and drivers as well is that, you know, one of the main reasons, if not the reason that they choose to earn on our platform is because of the flexibility that it allows. So talking with delivery partners recently, one is um, she's a she's a mother, she's got a young family, she's working, delivering in between her commitments, you know, picking up and dropping off her kids. She does it when it suits her. She doesn't do it when she's busy. And, you know, she really values that flexibility. And and similarly, totally different scenario. I was chatting with a student the other day who who delivers and he works this in around his studies and, and that's why it works so well for him. So that's the feedback that we hear. And the independent contractor model really supports that flexibility and and that's kind of at the heart of, you know, what we want to offer to delivery people and to drivers because that's what they tell us that they value. In the UK, there has been similar court action and Uber has had to reclassify drivers as workers following those court proceedings. So how did this change the relationship between Uber and drivers in the country? The situation in the UK is fairly different from here in New Zealand in that there is sort of a third category. There is independent contractors, employees and workers. And the finding was that drivers are are workers. And so that's a different third category that has a different set of benefits, but isn't being an employee per se. When you look at some of the conversation we've been having in Australia and around the legislative reform there, we've recently come out and put together a deal with the Transport Workers Union where we've articulated sort of a bit of a shared vision for how legislative reform might look. And in that, we've sort of 
identified some of the areas that we think additional benefits or protections within the status of independent contracting make sense. So, for example, we've sort of committed that we think there should be an earning standard for independent contractors in the gig economy, such as drivers and delivery partners, that provides minimum earnings across the sector. And so where Uber would like to see legislative reform going is towards maintaining that independent contractor class and and status for drivers and delivery people, but adding in sort of additional protections and benefits around that and within that to really sort of add more to it. So it doesn't have to be a trade-off necessarily between employment and protections and benefits, that you can actually have protections and benefits within the context of being an independent contractor. So, I mean, is that really the evolution of the gig economy that's happening here with almost like an admission that, yes, things have been disrupted, but that doesn't mean that they have to stay exactly as they are at the moment, that things can evolve? Yeah, I I think that's fair to say. I think that the gig economy, you know, although I said we've been here for eight years, it's still a relatively kind of young space and there's been a lot of evolution the technology has created immense opportunity for earners, drivers, delivery people, consumers and businesses. And now the conversation is really turning to how do we have legislation that supports that and ensures that we have a thriving gig economy, but that there are the the sort of safety nets and standards for the people working in that gig economy that need to be there. And we're really, really excited to be part of that conversation and, and the evolution of that. But, you know, as I mentioned, we see that as hey, the flexibility of independent contracting is something people really value and where reform should focus is on benefits and protections within that sort of class of work. Some restaurants just feel that they aren't getting profits or even a fair deal when using Uber. In fact, Restaurant Association of New Zealand General Manager Nicola Waldron says many of the businesses she works with see quite the opposite. Feedback from our members has been that typical commission rates for Uber are around about 35% or have been. So when you consider that the typical profit margin for a restaurant or cafe is between 3 to 5%, that sort of commission is pretty crippling for a lot of businesses. So Uber did say that they dropped the commission rate by about 5% during COVID. Was this helpful for the members or did that not really make a big difference given what high commission rate they were already paying? You know, even at 30%, the commission is too high for a lot of businesses. Over the past 12 months, we've also seen some really significant cost increases across our businesses, you know, with food cost increases being one of those major costs that, you know, our members are sort of saying are really impacting. And that's putting even more pressure on those really, really fine profit margins. It's something that I think really does need to be addressed and that's something where we do welcome that there is more competition in the food delivery market now because we do expect that that's going to result or is already starting to result in some changes to the commission rates and also maybe a mix of different options being available. The other thing with commission rates is that they're often being negotiated between Uber and the restaurant owner. Now, if you're a big business, you tend to be more likely to negotiate a better deal. But this also leaves smaller business owners having to fend for themselves. Uber's Becknice doesn't shy away from this, saying it's simply the nature of the negotiating process. We work with a range of partners and there's 
you know, negotiations that come into play. And, you know, like all businesses, we have to negotiate and we have to make our own economics work when we're working with very large enterprises. As in many businesses, there are those negotiation processes that happen. And as you can expect, when there's a certain scale, there are economies of scale that come with that. Um, But what we are committed to is we want to make the platform work for as many restaurants as possible. It's in our interest you know, we're a marketplace. We ideally want to see every restaurant on the platform. So trying to run a platform that, that works economically for all sorts of businesses, you know, in, with all sorts of strategies and settings is our priority. And so we just try to, you know, hear that feedback from restaurants and, and make it as flexible as possible. What advantages are there for smaller businesses to operate on the app if so much of their revenue goes to Uber through the commission process? Yeah, so one of the biggest reasons that smaller businesses work with Uber Eats and where we get a lot of positive feedback is just that revenue growth. It can be hard to attract lots of new customers in store. And by going on the Uber Eats platform, what you effectively get is perhaps thousands of consumers around you sort of seeing your restaurant, ordering from your restaurant, and it effectively unlocks a new revenue stream, which can be really valuable for small businesses who are looking to grow. Something that could help to level this playing field is the introduction of collective bargaining, which could see a group of small restaurants coming together to negotiate a better deal with Uber. But this is far easier said than done, according to Restaurant Association boss Nicola Waldron. We represent over 2,500 businesses around New Zealand. And up until now, Uber Eats have not been that open to collective bargaining through us. And we've been in touch with them basically since they've entered the market in New Zealand. But we would very much welcome the opportunity to reopen those discussions. The other thing is that there has been some regulation of platforms like this in other countries, and that might be a conversation as well with the regulators, you know, about how that might apply in the New Zealand market as well. Uber and its competitors aren't going anywhere anytime soon. What we're seeing now is the process of writing the rules after the game has started. The court case involving the unions will play a big role in that, but so will the restaurant owners who also want to run sustainable businesses. You'll still be able to hail your rides and have your food delivered, but the money machine behind making your life more convenient could be forced to change. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow the front page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.